So like much of his New Testament writing, the way Paul often writes here in Galatians is in very thick and layered terms that are loaded with theological meaning and that make very complicated arguments from Scripture in order to drive home the implications of pretty complex abstract ideas. And I, for one, love it. (laughs) Because in case you haven't noticed, I'm kind of an abstract idea guy. But there are a few places in Galatians where Paul puts down his pen, he takes off the rabbi scholar hat, and he looks them straight in the eyes in order to very personally and very passionately warn them that by giving in to these crazy Judaizers, they are in danger of abandoning his message of free grace that frees for their message of works righteousness that enslaves. In chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you, meaning I'm astonished, I'm bewildered, I'm frustrated, I'm flummoxed, that you are so quickly deserting God the Father who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I've only been gone a little more than a year and you're already turning back to a different gospel that's not a gospel. In chapter 3, he says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish? Strong words. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And then here in chapter 4, in our passage for today, he says something similar, and he begins to make an even more personal appeal. And just look at our passage today in chapter 4 and how, how personal he gets in a number of verses. How can you turn back again, verse 9? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? 11. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. 15. What then has become of your blessedness? 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And then he ends in verse 20 by saying, I am perplexed about you. Paul's not just confused, he's straight up frustrated with these Galatian Christians because they were listening to the Judaizers whose whose teaching perverted the gospel of free grace that frees by requiring, requiring the ongoing adherence to circumcision and the Jewish civil and ceremonial laws. Why would you go back to that as a form of slavery to the law and worship of empty pagan idols, he says. Why would you abandon the freedom of grace that has adopted you into God's family in order to inherit the blessings and riches of Christ that you couldn't for yourselves? Why would you go back to that when you've been given something that, because it's achieved for you by Jesus, 1 Peter 1.4, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you? Turning back toward the law is the opposite of the argument Paul had just made in Galatians 4, 1 to 7. They had just gone from slavery to sonship, as we studied last week in 4, 1 to 7. And going back to the law is a form of going back into slavery. And so here in verses 8 through 20, Paul continues his warning by making a very passionate and personal appeal to them. He starts off, follow with me, Galatians 4, verse 8. He starts off by reminding them of their pre-Jesus, their, their BC life. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, which is 
something that the Jews would often say about the Gentiles, the pagan Gentiles, that they did not know God because they didn't worship God as creator or give thanks and praise to God as savior. So he says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So as creature, when you don't worship God as creator, you become enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, Paul says. That's the normal sort of BC state of things for humanity. When you don't worship God as creator, you become enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He's reminding them of their former lives as pagan Gentiles, who he says were enslaved to those, interesting phrase here, that by nature are not gods. Now let's spend a couple minutes here on that phrase, those that by nature are not gods. He's speaking here the language of the ancient pagan philosophy to help drive home his point that listening to the Judaizers and going back to the law is tantamount. It's sort of equivalent to going back to the godless pagan ideologies that they used to worship. You see, in those days, the Gentile philosophers would assess the moral worth of an idea or an action by how it corresponded to nature, to the way things are in nature as they understood them. And by the way, lest we think that the ancients of a bygone era were somehow too simplistic and, and unintelligent compared to us sophisticated moderns with our capital S science, we actually still have this idea in modern philosophy. And to this day, this idea is one of the ideological underpinnings of all modern scientific inquiry. And it's still basically the consensus theory of truth. Nowadays, we call it the correspondence theory of truth. And it says that the truthfulness, the moral worth or weight of an idea or action is determined by the extent to which it corresponds to reality. The best account of reality is the truest account. So to begin bringing it back to the text, the pagan philosophers of Paul's day they applied this correspondence to nature idea to how they thought about their own deities and gods, a small g. And here's the part that helps us understand what Paul is saying here. The ancients thought that the real gods were so because they were made so by nature. They thought the truest gods were the ones who were so by nature because nature was often ident identified with deity. So when Paul says here to the Galatians, that before they knew God, they were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He's using ancient philosophical lingo and turning it on its head because Paul's a nerd and he likes to do that. And he's saying that before they knew God, they were actually just worshiping small g gods that were by nature actually not gods at all. They were worshiping and thus being enslaved by so-called gods that are not truly gods at all. They, they were worshiping what the scriptures call idols, empty and, and worthless pretend gods, as if the creation itself is worthy of worship compared to the all-knowing and all-powerful creator of all creation, as if creation is worthy of worship compared to the God who, in Genesis 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, the God who with a word spoke the universe into being and whose very existence sustains every single particle right now. These empty pagan idols you once worshiped, these ideas that take the form of 
people, security, achievement, notoriety, physical safety, man-made reconciliation, mindless entertainment, pointless recreation, unjust equity, etc., etc., etc. These empty pagan idols you worshipped that offered everything and delivered nothing were actually enslaving you. And holding you hostage to sin, Paul says, they were keeping you in bondage to their empty promises. And that's what Paul says here. That's what just happens by nature. That's where you were without God the Father. That's how you were when you were, as Ephesians 2 says, when you were dead in trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and when we were all living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, without hope and without God in the world. So by nature, before knowing God, those empty gods were not gods at all. And by nature, before knowing God, you were enslaved to them. But now, he says, verse 9, two very important words in the Bible. But now, meaning because God the Father sent the Son by the Spirit to adopt you into the family, Galatians 4, 4 to 7, now that you have, keep reading, now that you have come to know God, which is Bible language for a personal knowledge of and a relationship with God that frees from sin, in contrast to when they did not know God in verse 8. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, be known by God. Now, I know we all naturally want to keep going here, but press pause before we move on in this verse. In Bible terms, when Paul says here, or rather to be known by God, he is using this as an intensifier of what he has just said at the beginning of the verse to clarify and to communicate an even more certain and intimate knowledge than us coming to know God because as he wants to emphasize here, it's actually God's knowing of us that establishes our relationship with him. You having come to know God is better said as being known by God, Paul says. Knowing God is actually actually the result of God's initiative to send Christ and to renew your heart through the Spirit and to adopt you into the family, just like it says all over the Scriptures. As in Genesis 18, verse 19, where God knew Abraham and chose him to be the father of the Jews. And in Amos 3, chapter 3, verse 2, where God knew Israel and chose them out of all of the peoples. And in Jeremiah 1.5, where God knew Jeremiah before he was born and appointed him to be a prophet. And in the Gospel of John, where Jesus himself says, John 6.44, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 13.14 Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen. John 16, 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. John 16, 19, I chose you out of the world. James 1, 18 says that the Father brought us forth by the word of truth of his own will. And then in a wonderful passage in Deuteronomy 7, that brings together these ideas of God initiating relationship with his people in knowing and choosing and calling them to himself. He says to them, Deuteronomy 7, 
verses 6 through 8. He says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. There wasn't particularly anything noteworthy about you that warranted this choice, he says. In fact, you were the least worthy of note. But rather, verse 8, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God the Father himself initiated this relationship with you. Why? (laughs) Well, because God is good and he loves you and he keeps his promises. So what Paul is saying to these Christians in Galatia here in 4.8 and following is this. Now that you have come to be known and loved and chosen and called by God to be a full-fledged son and daughter in his forever family, then how, Paul says, how in the world, verse 9, can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves apparently you want to be once more? In listening to these circumcision weirdos who are trying to Judaize your faith in the all-sufficient Christ, you are not only in danger of turning back, but you've already begun to. Verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. You're already showing signs of giving in and going back. Now, press pause. Many Bible interpreters have long thought that verse 10 refers exclusively to how the Galatian Christians were apparently observing the Jewish calendar. And that may be, but as Doug Moo, and yes, that is his name, Doug Moo, as Doug Moo, who I think is king of the hill of Bible scholars, says, the language that Paul uses here for these observances seem to be deliberately vague and open-ended. What he means is that verse 10 is an example of something that Paul has done a number of times in Galatians. You see, because he's wanting to emphasize how Jesus brings together both Jews and Gentiles, he takes both Jewish and Gentile or Greek concepts. Remember, Greek in Paul's lingo in the New Testament is usually synonymous with Gentiles. So in Galatians, where Paul wants to emphasize that Jesus brings together Jews and Gentiles, remember Galatians 3.28, in Christ there's no Jew nor Greek, he's going to bring them together and sort of meld together Jewish and Greek ideas and repurpose them. And that's what he's doing here in verse 10. He's sort of vaguely alluding to both the Jewish concept of keeping the calendar in feasts and Sabbaths and the Greek concept of following the stars. And he's saying to both camps in Galatia, because they're both now together in the church, y'all Jews over here may have once observed the calendar and the feasts, and y'all Greeks over here may have once observed the supposed gods and the stars, but to keep doing those, to keep doing so in the form of circumcision and the ways that the Judaizers are requiring you to do, after you've been given the blessings of inheritance in Jesus, to keep doing that is to go backward to the elementary principles of the world, to the calendar and the feasts, to the gods in the sky, to listen to these false teachers about keeping the civil and ceremonial laws is to go back to the elemental basics and to functionally abandon the free grace that frees 
You're keeping various feasts and ceremonies as if that's a part of faith in Christ. You're trying to adhere to the the civil and the ceremonial parts of the Old Testament law as if doing so helps you and makes you worthy or saintly or or pleases the Judaizers or, or if doing so would perhaps bring a deeper and closer experience of Christ that others can't experience or even perhaps as if doing those things makes you feel worthy or spiritual or tones for your sins. But in doing so, Paul says, it's not only a pathetic and a powerless form of works, righteousness, and earning of blessing, but all that really amounts to is subjecting yourselves to the former pagan idols of your past. It's ongoing enslavement to the elementary school ABCs and the old Testament and old covenant types and shadows that could never really save, but that were meant to point to the one who can save. So, wrapping all that together, Paul is frustrated because he says, how on earth, after just a year or year or so of me being with you to teach you the gospel of free grace basics, how can you turn back again to the old ways? He says, verse 11, I am afraid, he's worried, that I may have labored over you in vain. Perhaps I've wasted my time. Perhaps I've given myself to you to no good end. (laughs) So he ratchets up here. He ratchets up his personal appeal to them by recounting their history and their relationship together. He says, verse 12, brothers, which is family language, I entreat you, I beg you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. He says, become as I am. Be free of the law as I am. For I came and lived among you as a friend, as a brother. And you can trust me now as you did before. (laughs) Which is why he says, keep reading, you did me no wrong. I trusted you. You trusted me at least once before. And then he uses this example of how they accepted him when he was with them before. Look at verse 13. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Long story short, we don't know exactly what this bodily ailment was, but many speculate that Paul may have had some sort of chronic eye problem, some chronic problem with his eyesight that may have been kind of gross or somehow visually off-putting, and that something happened with this bodily ailment, perhaps, that may have required Paul to be in Galatia in the first place, which is why he came to preach the gospel to them at all in the first place. So he says this, verse 14, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. You didn't call me unclean and run away and reject me, but you received me, received me in my gospel as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus, meaning as a messenger sent from God. So even though I was there accidentally because of my bodily ailment, which you didn't reject or you didn't run away from, you received my gospel of free grace that frees as if it were from God himself. So what gives now, he says, verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? This word blessedness just means their happiness. What has become of your former happiness? You were fine with me before, but now apparently we have some sort of problem, Paul says. For I testify to you, I stand behind this, he says, that if possible, 
you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. He's saying, your behavior, your former behavior and acceptance of me and my message then were demonstrated in your love for me because you would have given me the shirt off your back or kind of gross your own eyes. Insert ophthalmological joke here. Sorry, I digress. I digress. Paul says, we were just fine, but a year ago when you accepted me and my message and you offered me your eyes, then he says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Am I suddenly on your bad list because I'm speaking the truth of the gospel to you? Listen, they make much of you, which is a phrase that means they seek out with great zeal and fervor and enthusiasm. They, the Judaizers, they seek you out with great fervor, but for no good purpose. They seem genuine. They, they talk a good game as if their motives are honorable and as if they're trying to help you, but it's not for good and godly purposes. Their flattery of you is not an honorable pursuit In fact, they want to shut you out. They want to alienate you from me, from the body of Christ. Why? That you may make much of them. So that they can just use you for their own purposes. Their game is actually to keep you enslaved to their false teachings and to manipulate and abuse you for themselves. Paul says, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. It's fine for someone to seek after you for good purposes, even for someone other than me to do so, which is why he says, and not only when I am present with you. And then he closes in verses 19 and 20 with personal words of concern. He says, my little children, family language. He was a father to them spiritually. My little children, for whom I am again, not for the first time, whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I'm writing you as family, he says, because I'm working for Christ's purposes for you. He says, I wish it could be different. Look at verse 20. (laughs) I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. I'm at my wit's end. I, I don't understand how this has happened. You've got to get your head straight. You've got to stand up to these infiltrators because they're not your friends. They don't really care about you. They certainly don't really care about the truth of the gospel. And for you to listen to them is to turn back again to the slavery under the law. Now, I want to make two quick points of application and then close with a takeaway question. First is this. A friend is not someone who makes much of you for no good purpose, but who tells the truth of the gospel so Christ is formed in you. Paul gives us here a filter for helping us determine the difference between real friends and Judaizers. He says in verse 16, Have I become your enemy by telling the truth? And then he points out in verse 19 that he is, again, not for the first time, he is again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. 
it's, it's often easiest to listen to and to be with a friend who never challenges you and, and who mostly just nods and agrees and laughs along with the things that you do. But it's rarely the best thing to go with the easiest friend. I'm convinced that many end up leaving us as a church because they just don't want to hear any more challenge. And it's just easier to gather easy friends instead of good friends. It's easier to be with somebody who makes much of you. But the truth is that far too many gather around them friends who largely nod and agree because they're sick in the same ways you are. It's even actually worse than just the slick manipulation of the Judaizers who are relatively easy to spot for their selfish spiritual goals because for far too many of us, without even knowing it, we gather friends who are making much of us for themselves and their own spiritually sick and selfish purposes that they themselves don't even see. When the gospel is not the center, a relationship cannot be truly, mutually healthy. So as Paul implies here, when someone is consistently speaking truth so that Christ is formed in you, that person is a true friend. So find people who care about Christ being formed in you. Second thing for us to see here is that pleasing the Judaizers in your life can so easily become a form of slavery. By nature, the perversity of the human heart is attracted to the slavery of self-justification. It's what we do. It's what we do to atone for sin. So in practical terms, that often means that, that pleasing people, especially the Judaizers in your life, while it may make you feel like you're being helpful or sustaining a friendship or, or even contributing to your own justification before God, it can too easily be a form of slavery that lives as if the freedom that we have in Christ isn't real and as if his finished work on the cross weren't enough. It's all too easy to be motivated by things other than pleasing God and to be motivated by things other than living from gratitude for his grace. So friends, it's a helpful filter for us to be aware in our own motivations, to be aware of whether we're listening to Judaizers or we're reclaiming the truth of the gospel of free grace that truly frees. Now, putting these two practical applications together, let's take just a few moments and ask ourselves this simple but hard-to-apply takeaway question. In your life, what friendship needs gospel truth? And where do you need to stop pleasing a Judaizer? So friends, answering this question honestly and with the integrity that follows through will be hard. But if we are in Christ, and if we have the gospel, we can do hard things because we know that we have already everything we need for life and salvation. 
for our greatest problem of sin so that we can answer honestly and with the kind of integrity that follows through. And lastly, friends, if you are not in Christ, if he's not Lord and Savior, if you don't have him in your heart by the Spirit through faith, here's the gospel you need. Only those who are perfect and sinless can be in the presence of God forever. And though every single one of us has broken God's law and fallen short of that unmovable standard of his holiness, the sacrifice of the life of Jesus, who perfectly kept God's law for you, is sufficient to justify you before God and to make you part of his forever family. Friends, he has done this for you, for free, to make you free. It's called grace, and it's why we love him, and it's why we worship him, and it's why we serve him with our lives. Father in heaven, we're gathered around your word because you tell us who you are. You tell us who we are. You tell us who we are in relationship to you as perfect, sinless God and creator of all. And we admit that because in your word, we hear the story of our own lives and how we are insufficient. We are sinners that fall short of your unmovable holy standard. And so we're grateful. We're grateful that you give us Jesus that his perfect and sinless life lived for us meant that he was under the law and yet lived perfectly according to it so that we could be robed in the righteousness he gives us, justified before you, declared righteous because of his work for us. And that on the cross, which was the finished work, he stood to atone for sins as after three days the risen Savior who showed that you have power over death for us. And so we love you for that amazing truth. We love you that that's the story of grace and that as we accept you as Lord and Savior of, of our lives, we can have grace. That is why we love you, it's why we worship you, and it's why we serve you. We ask that you would continue to make that the case for us in our lives today. In the name of Jesus we pray.